Welcome to Sunday morning and Allie and Pacero. This is Alan Allie. Jim Pacero's taking the day off, but I'm here with the Rational Republicans, Nick and James. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having us. Good morning. How are you guys? Pretty good. How was Thanksgiving? It was good. We had a socially distanced, everybody wore their masks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's hard to eat turkey with your mask on. Though. Yeah, we we found a way though. We everybody wore the masks. You could like cut a hole in it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Followed you, all of the rules to a T. We laugh about it, but one of the things, and sort of odd out of the box observation was it made Thanksgiving even more of a heightened event for me. It, mm. it sometimes Thanksgiving becomes sort of a a flyover holiday where it's just a dinner before Christmas. Yeah. But this one, because of everything that went on and because of the restrictions, it made you think about how important those relationships are and, and how nice that is to have all those people together and um, how hard it was to not just be able to have your normal Thanksgiving. Right. And it was, it was very interesting. And in some ways, I think it made people more appreciative. You know, if you look on social media, the, the thoughts that people had were, um, I'll call it maybe a little more genuine that maybe people had reflected a little bit about, about family and friends and, and what this whole thing means. So, and I think there, there really is a lot to be thankful for. And honestly, my wife and I just sat and did Thanksgiving with just the two of us and still made enough food to have about 12 people over that yeah. we decided to, but it's, it actually was just the two of us. And, it, and she had gotten out the nice china, the nice wine glasses. We, you know, we did, did everything up and. It wasn't until we physically sat down, all the food was on the table, and she said, okay, go ahead and say grace. And I said, okay, sure, that's what you do before dinner like this. And, you know, I started off, and it's like, dear God, we really do have a lot to be thankful for this right. year. And I went through and listed a lot of things, and we have health, and we have the disposable income to put a bunch of food on the table. And I, I to your point, Alan, yeah. I think it's very much a time to stop and realize what you actually do have to be thankful for, even if you're not with the people that you'd be thankful to be with. Yeah. No, it was uh, it was really different. We did a lot of Zoom, Facebook, uh, sure. or a, uh, FaceTime calls with with great, great grandma now, and I don't know that we would have spent as much time on on those calls, you know, mm-hmm. that they're usually very perfunctory, just sort of hi, Graham, how are you, you know, let the kids say hi, yeah. yeah, and there were some better conversations that occurred. I'm not saying that. I wish this on us as a society to make us think about these things, but sometimes I do reflect that when bad things happen, that's the time when you, when you sort of take an inventory of mm-hmm. your life and reflect about what's important to you. Um, if there's a reason for bad things happening, I think that seems to be it. Anyway, we're going to talk about COVID. COVID? Yeah. <laughs> what? It seems like it's uh, it's now pushed its way back up to the front. There appears to be a surge, at least, you know, there's a reported surge. You would get the impression that it's a reported surge globally. It doesn't actually seem to be. Um, remarkably, I was on a call with some people from Spain uh, this week. 
and uh, they were asking, you know, how are things in Portland? They had heard about our riots and that the city was burning, <laughs> oh, yeah. of that course. We know what we're known international for. International news, for yes, sure. Yes, a guy from Madrid and a guy from uh, Tenerife, uh, and they had heard about the Portland riots, but they were asking how we were. And they were very proud to say that they are in a much better position. You might remember mm-hmm. back in the first wave, Spain was one Spain of the worst. Spain had, yeah. Right? And they said that they're kind of coming through it and things look pretty good. And and they had this, you know, sort of very positive attitude about it. Uh, not so much here. What we're hearing here is we're in wave 2.0. Well, I think what... Uh, kind of has struck me and just sort of watching this unfold, it sort of seems like until there's a vaccine, you're going to go through it one way or the other. Whether if you lock down early, all you're doing is postponing that wave. And I I saw uh, some data just yesterday that Oregon has one of the highest R-naught values in the country by state. And what is is that? R-naught is the rate of transmission. And so it it kind of hovers around one. And so if you, if your R-naught is at one, that means for every infection, they on average will infect one other person. And so if your R-naught is lower than one, the disease eventually dies out on its own. Uh, if it's higher than one, then it expands ex- exponentially. Ex- yeah. And so you can take, take, um, precautions or vaccines or whatever right. to raise or lower that. And so it just sort of seems to me that all we've su- succeeded in doing in Oregon is delaying what New York went through back in March and what Texas went through six months ago and, or not, maybe not six, three months ago. When did Texas? Yeah. Texas, Texas was a little go? bad in September or so, but I, I think that was kind of the point when we started these lockdowns as he said, well, we do not want to overwhelm the hospital system. And right now I saw a Willy week article a day or two ago that said there are 1700 some odd hospital beds in the state of Oregon. All but 75 have somebody in them right now now which is terrifying and that that says to me that you guys had six months eight months to figure out a way to not overwhelm the hospital system and yet here we are right you know i i saw that willamette week article and it was a i call it breathless reporting about the lack of intensive care beds and that mm-hmm. we're at 80 percent full on intensive mm-hmm. care beds and that was alarming to me and then because i'm that way i went and did <laughs> some research because it's like if you were designing a system, you wouldn't design a system where the intensive care beds just sit around empty. Yeah. You'd try to come up with some sort of what level do you want them to be at? And it turns out the average across the United States is about 65% occupancy. Hmm. So we're at 15% higher occupancy than average, which is high. But it's not, it's not like 80% of the beds. Oh my God. It's a good point. And I've got a friend who's a nurse and she was saying if they run out of ICU space, what they do is they just take another ward and designate it as ICU space. And so they can, they can add ICU beds pretty easily. The, the issue with her though is the nursing staff because there are different nursing, much higher nursing requirements for ICU beds than for normal. And so you have to have three or four times as many nurses on staff. Uh, or on on shift to take care of these ICU beds. So that's really the the bottleneck is the nursing staff, not really the beds. Well, there was another thing. I had a friend that went in for a uh, elective surgery. I think it was knee replacement, and he hadn't had his COVID test. So they admitted him, and 
put him in the ICU, assuming that he had COVID. That was the mm. assumption that you take. So he took up an ICU bed for a couple of days, and then he had his test, and he was out. We'll get back and talk more about this in our next segment. This is Ali and Pacero with James and Nick. Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503-558-6349 or proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Welcome back to Allie and Pacero. This is Alan Alley with Nick Perlosky and James Ball from the Rational Republican. And we're talking about COVID. We're having all these anecdotal observations about things, which are fine. You know, we all have those observations. The thing that frustrates me is the data remains completely messed up. And the I track the Oregon Health Authority and the data that they publish, and they publish death data every day and new cases data every day. And I've entered it into a spreadsheet religiously since they started publishing. And I can tell you that from when they started till now, their data is getting worse and worse. And there's a couple of metrics. One is when somebody would die, they'd report it. And it would generally be that they had passed away with COVID in the previous one or two days. And that kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now... It could be one or two days. It could be seven days. It could be two weeks. It could be last month. Hmm. And I'd say a third of the reported deaths now did not occur in the past week. And I, wow. I don't understand it. The other thing is, is that they used to report with or without underlying conditions. Hmm. And it would, it was pretty simple and pretty much every single patient probably for the first 200 had it recorded with 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 and of the first 200 i'd say it was 195 were with underlying conditions and five were not now 20 percent 30 percent are unknown they huh. they list it as nah we don't know if they had underlying conditions here's here's my theory and Maybe this is a little tinfoil hatty, but you have to, I feel like you have to look at this from a democratic perspective because the OHA is a democratic organization. The governorship is a democratic organization. Everybody who works in, in the government is pretty much a Democrat. <laughs> um, to Have a Democrat, Plarno, save us. <laughs> why would you need, why would reporting data be a priority? No, because the government knows best. I mean, the government is the parent figure. In, in your worldview, the parent tells you what to do and you do it. I mean, that's, and so why does the parent doesn't need to explain to the child why they're doing things or that this is the right thing? That it's the child, the parent's job is to tell the child what to do and the child's job is to do it. And that's, that's kind of the way, I think that's just how a lot of Democrats see the government of, we just, we just need to do what we're told and it does, like, so why, why would you waste resources 
reporting accurate data. So you're just supposed to do what you're told. Also, quite tinfoil hatty, but two or three months ago, a stat came out that showed of all of the COVID deaths in the United States, 6% were linked solely to COVID. 94% were coronavirus and the person had asthma and the person had a bad heart, you know, whatever. And people immediately jumped on that and said, whoa, 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 that doesn't mean that coronavirus is only 6% as deadly as we think it is. That just means that it's a huge factor to, you know, some factor to some extent for all of the rest of these people just because they didn't die exclusively of coronavirus. But I think to your point, Alan, what that does point out is that we have a lot of numbers that are we try to get to one singular thing and say a quarter million Americans died of coronavirus and a quarter million Americans died and had coronavirus. But I think there's no way to really know how impactful coronavirus was in the the causes of those people's deaths. Well, this is something that we shared a couple articles prior to the show about, which is you can kind of look at that. You can try to try to triangulate that through excess deaths. So every year people die. Lots of people die. Old age, heart disease, car accidents. And you can, given a large enough sample size, you can predict that pretty well. Uh, actuaries, that's their entire job is figuring out how many people are going to die in a particular year and what age they're going to be and whatever. And so what you can do is look at what was the predicted number of deaths in 2020 and then see how many excess deaths took place during COVID. And what that's going to give you is COVID deaths. It's going to give you COVID with, with, uh, I mean, you're not going to be able to tell this individual person, you know, had, who had heart disease, whether did they die of heart disease that was contributed by COVID or from COVID that had been contributed by heart disease. But it can kind of give you an, a broad example. And we, we saw two different articles. One who looked at that excess death data that, that you shared and based their conclusion was we are over reporting COVID deaths that we were expecting a spike anyway from just normal causes. And then there was another article by the CDC looking at the same data, and their conclusion was that we were underreporting because right. there are people dying that would have not would, that would have survived. And I guess that their thought was people who are not doing elective surgeries that would have maybe saved them, or they're not right. going to the hospital, or you're well, taking up ICU beds. I, uh, and I think that's I think that's a great point. I think there's also it's not just coronavirus that's that's going sure. on right now. I think in 2020 there's going to be a lot fewer deaths from things like car crashes because for many months, I mean, we saw it. All anytime we'd get in the car, there's a lot less traffic going on. There's a lot fewer people driving places because everybody's working from home. But there's probably going to be a lot more deaths, deaths by suicide because mental health is a right. massive concern right now. There's probably going to be a lot more deaths from alcohol-related issues because people are at home, don't have anything to do, and they're abusing alcohol. So and seven years from now, Harvard Business Review is going to do a case study on this, <laughs> and we're going to know exactly what are. happened that we yeah. should have done. <laughs> so I, Oregon does a pretty good job of recording deaths by type. And there's sort of a broad categorization of natural causes, and then there's suicide and deaths from um, law enforcement, accidental deaths, that sort of thing. And it's pretty consistent year to year to year. And then you have to inflate the number by about 1% because we've been growing about mm-hmm. 1%. Per, mm-hmm. Oregon's been growing at about 1% per year. And if you plot all that out a- as a casual observer i haven't done any sort of regression analysis or anything against it it kind of plots in a general trend and there's nothing alarming that pops out and you get to 2020 2020 kind of follows the curve there it there 
appears to be a few more deaths, but you're talking 30,000 deaths a year from natural causes, not from accidents, not from suicides, not from... That's Oregon specific. That's Oregon specific. And we're tracking to about 30,000. It might be 30,500. Well, geez, the COVID deaths are 850. So somebody would write an article and say, ah, there's the correlation, right? Well, I would say Oregon's probably a too small a sample size. I would, I would think you would need to look at the whole country if you were going to make that kind of... But, but if you're making decisions in Oregon, uh, I guess what I'm saying is at least in Oregon, it's not clear. If, if I asked people, you know, on the street, what's COVID doing? And, and you said, did it increase by, uh, you know, three tenths of a percent, half a percent, five percent, ten percent? I would imagine average people would say that we probably have 10, 15, 20, 30 percent more deaths than what we had. And the average age is 77 in Oregon. A certain percentage of people, 77 and above, would have passed away anyway. And this is where it, it, it just doesn't seem to add up. And as an engineer, it's incredibly frustrating. That's our second segment. Uh, we'll take a break and we'll be back more on COVID, more on election 2020 and the Portland riots continue. This is Abrams and, or Ali and Pacero <laughs> <laughs> with James and Nick. The Portland Spirit is headed to the river. Hop on board today for great views of the Portland skyline and historic Milwaukee waterfront. See our local landmarks and bridges from a unique vantage point on the river. Grab a cocktail on our outer deck while enjoying some of our delicious local cuisine. Fun for the whole family with options including lunch, brunch, dinner, and the famous Heart of Portland cruise. Tickets can be purchased at portlandspirit.com. Welcome back to Ali and Pacero. I've got James Ball and Nick Perlosky here with me from the Rational Republican Podcast. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Hey, hey. Buried in the basement, trying to keep our social distance here. Well, Nick and I see each other about twice a week, so oh, we're, there you we're go. basically family at this we're point. We're our own pod here. That was the way James and I are. Uh, we were together through the whole thing. We were in studio for for many weeks together. So, Yep. Um, there's some other things going on with covid I think, James, you sent around an article about a workout facility. The courthouse, which operates several facilities in Salem, was fined $90,000 for staying open during the uh, two-week freeze that Oregon is going through. And he had said that this was going to put him out of business, I think, right? Yeah. And so, the kind of I I love analogies, and this is kind of... I, I can just see the owner, and it's basically... Governor Brown holding the gun to your head and saying, jump off this cliff or I'm going to shoot you. And he, the owner says, well, you know what? I'll take my chances up here. And then he gets shot. Right. And then, you know, it's, it's like we're in an abusive relationship with Governor Brown. It's like, well, you know, if you didn't stay open, I wouldn't have to fine you. You know, this is your fault. Remember, this is your fault for, for doing this. You know, we're, I'm doing the right thing and I'm setting these rules, but you know, you, it's your fault for not following them. And so this, this fine is 
your responsibility. Well, another thing that's a little bit bizarre here is that the governor has certain emergency powers. And this has actually been litigated, but I don't know that it's been litigated to the extent that she's using them. And there's a little gray area in there that you have these emergency powers for 30 days. So she could basically do whatever she wants, declare an emergency. And you can, you can imagine in a natural disaster, typhoon, whatever, you got to jump in and do this. So this was one, I actually read up on one of those lawsuits and I think there are three different clauses in yeah. the Oregon constitution for emergency powers. And this is the, the argument from the left because yeah. <laughs> co or uh, former host Mark Abrams <laughs> right. was defending this case. And so he kind of gave us a little bit of insight. I, I think it's over. We can talk about it. Mm -hmm. But basically the lawsuit was, so the, these three different layers, the most, the most power you can get has the most restrictions and the shortest time frame. And then there's one in the middle. And then there's one that is basic, essentially indefinite, but it has a limited number of emergency powers. And so the question of the lawsuit was, which of these different clauses are we using? And the state and the governor was saying, basically, we're using this lowest tier, which has no time limit, but limited powers, which she's kind of been, I think she's been bending the rules on that. Um, but yeah, she, and, and, and this is her, her point is she, she doesn't want to give up those emergency powers. She wants to keep them and has for and to your point, emergency powers are not designed to create an autocratic society where the governor has absolute control. Right. They are meant to, there's a typhoon and we need to get stuff done and we don't have time or energy to bring all 90 members of the legislature together to go make decisions. Right. Well, and I think the, the salient point with the, with the emergency powers is there needs to be a, a pretty broad, pretty well understood emergency. And I obviously there is here, we're in the middle of a pandemic. This is a, a massive problem for Oregon and the country. But the 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 owner of the gyms in Salem and he I, he tried to counter sue or you know say I'm not going to pay the fine or whatever and in his letter he pointed out that gyms are not super spreader events people mm -hmm. can go people can work out safely we as the gym owners can take steps to keep people socially distant and ensure they have masks on and whatever this is not the problem and I think this is the same thing outdoor dining is not the problem doing things like I, th there's a million different things that Kate Brown has just blanketly banned. And in, in something like this, you need nuance. You need well, the ability it, to look at what the it, data are telling you. If she, if her point, and this is something that I've brought up a number of times on the other podcast in this one is the government is using a single metric to decide whether or not something's working. And that is the number of cases right. of COVID. They're not looking at the number of deaths. They're not looking about at the mental health impacts. They're not looking at the impacts to business. They are using one single metric. And if you are using one single metric, you can do whatever you want to reduce that one metric. And that's a problem because yeah, that, that is the most important metric, but it is not the only metric. It's, I mean, the mental health and the effect on businesses, what we need with a good governor or good leadership would be to look at all those other cases and say, how can we reduce this number and also take into account all of these other things, uh, so that we can do this with the least amount of collateral damage to the other, the other Good areas. I was, I'd take competent governor now. Yeah. That, that, uh, conversation that I was having with the guys from Spain, um, some of them were, were from Intel mm -hmm. and we were talking about this. And I said, you know, if you gave this problem to Intel and you just said, look, here, here's what we got. Here's this disease. Here's how it's spread. You know, you have a week, put a team on it and come back with recommendations. 
this is this is the kind of problem that a company like an Intel or an Apple solves every single day. These multivariable, insurmountable, overwhelming amounts of data, all this noise and trying to find what really are the things that are going on. What what are the things that are really affecting it? That's the kind of thing that they do. That's I, a good point, actually. This would have been a great opportunity for Kate Brown, as, as somebody who as unpopular as Kate Brown, just get McKinsey in here totally. and say, okay, look, here here's the Oregon Constitution. Here's the Oregon Blue Book. This is, you know, this is what I can do. These are my powers. This is what the legislature has. Here's the problem, obviously, that we're going through in Oregon. Come back and she can go back and say, this is what McKinsey said to do. This is not Kate Brown. This is not Democrat overarching. This is what we need to do. That's been reported by an outside consulting firm and take the politics out of it. See, I, I'm going to, I'm going to disagree slightly. I think that if that was done, th- this, her problem is that she doesn't see the problem the way that we see the problem mm-hmm. to her. The problem is we need to cut the number of cases of COVID period, full stop. The best way to do that, shut everything down. There are, but if, if she were to go to McKinsey and say, we need to, right. we, we need to reduce the number of cases full stop. McKinsey's going to come up with the same thing she did, which is well, shut everything well, down. Yeah. But McKinsey's smarter than she is. Here's, <laughs> but here, here's the problem with that. So the kids are not in school. Yeah. We're not going to church. We're not even going into our offices. Um, I have dramatically changed my travel behavior. I'm not eating out. We're not going to Timbers games. We're all wearing masks. Pretty much, the uh, University of Washington publishes this data. Oregon is, you know, 70, 80% people are wearing masks. Um, we're doing all of these things and we're not stopping the spread, right? We don't even know if we're attenuating it. We don't even know if we're slowing it down. Well, if you listen to the Democrats, they will say, we're not actually doing that. The Democrats are doing it. They're following the rules. <laughs> But Tootie Smith and friends are there's are not. a small. I mean, you can look so, at the data. I mean, no, you're, you're University right. of I, Washington tracks it. I'm just trying to play a devil's but advocate. But the other here. the other thing that's interesting is there are places where people don't wear masks, like Denmark, the a place where they hold it up as look at Denmark. They're doing everything right, and they have very low transmission rates, and they have very low death rates, and they have very low rate of wearing masks. Now, it, it's, it probably, there is a correlation is that if you don't perceive that there's a threat because you have low death rate and you have low transmission, you have, is that you don't wear masks, but they don't have mandated mask laws. And one of the things that, that they're talking about with Biden is he comes in and puts in a, a national mandated mask law. And look, I'll voluntarily wear it. Because I don't think it hurts, mm-hmm. but this is this lack of of not only data but thoughtful analysis that that I really wish we could see. And we've run out of time again. Um, we've got lots more to talk about this week: the election twenty twenty, the recounts that are going on, the Portland riots, and I'm sure we'll probably do another segment on COVID. This is <laughs> this is Ali and Pacero with James and Nick. This is Ali and Pacero with James and Nick. We're talking all things COVID. And one of the things I'd like to turn to, guys, is with all this that we're talking about, and I would imagine 
many, many people are having these conversations as frustration grows that you can't get your kids back to school, that you're not in the office. We don't have the bailout programs that we had. We don't have two or three trillion dollars flowing into the economy. Bills are going to start coming due. Rent payments are going to come due. Car payments are going to come due. People are, are kind of running out the string that they're going to get frustrated. Mm-hmm. And do you perceive that? Or, or do we just believe, yeah, the government's going to write another check? What's, what's your perception? So I, I think that it's borderline criminal that Congress has not put together another COVID relief package because they clearly, the first one, they just ha- got out the door because they had to get something done. Right, right now, I, we just did a podcast with, uh, Dr. Lisa Reynolds, who is the, uh, the first place winner. James came in a strong second place in his race for state house. Uh, but Dr. Oh, Reynolds is the first place. I, I did. She, she beat me by registration. The registration disadvantage was six to one and right. she only beat me by five to one. There you go. There you, go. you gave her a run for her money. Yep. Did she admit that on the podcast and, uh, I don't, I don't think we talked about it. I don't think we got that. <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't say, you gave me the much tougher run than I ever thought I was going to have. No. She did thank you for running, which I, which I thought was big of her. That was nice for her. Yeah. But I, she, she made a comment on our air that we immediately switched to another topic and I wish we could have gotten into it with her a little bit. But she said, all this legislation, you know, Mitch McConnell is just sitting on his desk. And it's like, well, no, Nancy Pelosi's not doing anything and she's only sending him bad bills. This is a pox on both of their houses at this point point. But I think at this point, they're obviously going to wait till the Democratic administration gets in and see what they can get through with Biden, especially if one or both of the Georgia seats goes blue. But in terms of will there be another coronavirus relief package? Will the government step in? They're going to have to jump in and do something because otherwise this is we have 50 states plus D.C. plus all the territories plus the rest of the world. Everybody's going in their own direction. If you if you imagine an atom and you zoom in on all the little you know protons and electrons and everybody's just zooming around different which ways, there needs to be some cohesive, here's what the package looks like, here's what the relief is going to be, and here's when we can expect this to be over. Well, and the bottom line is the federal government's the only one that can print money. Mm-hmm. And that's where this is coming from. They're They're basically printing it. And the states can't. So there's only a certain amount that you can do in the state. The government's the only one that can turn on the printing press and go whoop and print a trillion dollars. Money machine go burr. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's um, I, we absolutely need one because the default is you let the economy go. You know, let my people go. Let us yeah. go. Well, let I us mean, go back to the gyms. Altern- us- alternatively, yeah, you, you reopen everything. Right. Those, those are pretty much your two options. You reopen everything or we get a big old stimulus again. Right. And Biden's not going to do that. No, and, he's not. You know, the, it's so fascinating because printing money, by definition, if you look it up in the, in the dictionary, it's inflationary. It, it, mm-hmm. it, it means that the dollar that you had is now worth less because I printed a bunch more. It's not as valuable, right? And, uh, but when the entire globe is printing money, then, then we're, we're all in this thing together. Because it's relative. It's it's relative. The price of the dollar is relative to other indices. Yeah. And everybody's printing. So there's they figured this out. It was in the last recession where I was trying to figure out how the money supply kept growing and inflation was flat. Well, everybody was doing it. China was doing it. Russia was doing it. We were doing it. Everybody did mm-hmm. it. And 
I feel like they've, they believe that they've cracked the code, that you can endlessly print money now, and you don't actually have to do anything. We could ask Zimbabwe or Venezuela how that worked out for them. <laughs> well, and that's right. the modern monetary theory. That's the, uh, All these left-leaning groups are now coming out and just say, yeah, we can just print money. It doesn't matter. We can forgive all student loans. That's fine. We can fully fund Social Security for decades going forward. That's fine. We can pay off everybody's, you know, any debt that you incurred from coronavirus. And that's obviously not the case. And that's a very dangerous precedent. We're in the middle of a massive pandemic that has cost all of us an insurmountable amount. This is, you know, in, in, for any of us in our individual families, we have a checking account and we spend money down from that. And if there's some, the dog gets seriously ill or there's a big car repair that we have to have or something like that, if there's some emergency, we'll throw it on the credit card. We'll pay for it now. If we don't have the money, we'll figure it out later. This is what we're doing as a country. But I, this is my concern is that the MMT folks are going to take this going forward and just say, oh, we did it for coronavirus. We can just right. do it for anything now. No. Well, and that's the yeah. problem because it, think about it. As I used to say this when I was in the governor's office and I talked to my business friends is like, why are they, why are they raising taxes? Why, why don't they just be more efficient? It said, well, in your business, if you could just turn a knob and increase sales and it had no other, you don't perceive that it has any other effect. You can just turn the knob and increase sales. Wouldn't you turn the knob and go, well, yeah. And that's how people that's in the government taxes. see things. Mm-hmm. It's like I just turn the knob. Yeah. With the with the printing of the money, this is like a magic genie. And the magic genie came to the government and said, I will grant you one wish. What would you like that wish to be? Well, print some money. So the magic genie printed the money. And you know what? Then they went back and they said, hey, genie, can you do that again? And the genie said, well, of course I can. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and prints more money. And... The, but the problem is, is that if the genie stops, right? And it's not really a genie, right? It's, it is a credit card. It is a national debt. Um, it is the abdication of any kind of adult responsibility mm-hmm. at, at pretty much every level. It is beyond my comprehension. It, 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 it really is. It's, it's, well, and I, and I understand that we are, everybody at all levels is working without a net on this one. And that, you know, Obama people like to come by and say, well, we had a playbook for the, for pandemics. They had Donald like Trump nine like, people in a pandemic <laughs> yeah, office. Yeah, and they're like, saying that like, yeah, come it's on. like, let's, let's slow down with the blaming on Donald Trump here. Like, let, come on guys. But uh, Donald Trump, Kate Brown, Ted Wheeler, everybody at every level, there's no real, okay, here's the right way to do. So people are trying a lot of different things and, God bless them. That's what you need to be doing. Some things are going to work. Some things aren't. But I think you're absolutely right is the, the problem that we've got here is a failure to failure to learn from the things that did not yeah. work. Yeah. I, I, we know so much more about COVID today than we did nine months ago. Mm-hmm. We know who it affects. We know how it, you know, we have all this information. We don't have as much data about about testing and how it's transmitted and can you get it twice? And if you have this antibody, you can't get it again. If you have that one, you can. We've got a vaccine that's right on the horizon. Mm-hmm. T- to your point, you could go to the vaccine manufacturers and say, give me the rollout of the vaccine. How much can you produce? When can you produce it? Who can those go to? If we just protected the oldest people that are in group facilities, the death rate goes from here to here. 
mm-hmm. you can do that very, very quickly. Well, if I can do that, when can I open the economy? You could schedule, you know, April 3rd, economy <laughs> yeah. reopens. Yay. Right. <laughs> Just in time for tax day. But they're not, they're not doing that. <laughs> anyway, we got to take a break. This is Ali and Pacero with my friends from the Rational Republican. When we get back, I want to turn back to election 2020. There were some very interesting things going on there. Not just the recount, but what happened in the House and in the Senate. Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503-558-6349 or proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Welcome back to Ali and Pacero with James and Nick from the Rational Republican. We've been talking all things covid uh, but I'd like to turn to election 2020. It now appears that, as we've said on this show many, many times, the process is actually working. I do kind of feel like the, like the pressure is decreasing because they're going through, they're doing the recounts, they're certifying, people are making their you know, their objections known, the lawsuits are being filed, you know, people are having their day in court, and we're going through that process, and it looks like Joe Biden's going to win the election. We've got a very robust system here in the United yeah. States, and and not to say that some shady stuff is, it's impossible for shady things to happen, but like when you have the courts, when you have recounts, when you have all these legislatures, when you have so many different checks and balances, the chances of things going completely awry are pretty small. And that's not to say that there's zero. And I think that I've said it on this podcast before or this live stream, whatever we're, we're calling Both. this. The, the <laughs> is pod stream. Just go, let's go through the post, just go through the process. Right. It's not hurting anyone to recount. It's not hurting anyone to look at these lawsuits and try to figure out what's going on and see if there's any foul play. And if there is, you address it. And if there's not, Hey, we looked. So. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll be the, the slightly dissenting voice here. I, and, uh, you know, Alan, again, this is your air. Uh, you, you made a comment a second ago that it looks like Joe Biden won the election. I, I would, I would feel comfortable saying Joe Biden did win the election. And I think that, uh, James, you're, you're right in saying that there's nothing wrong with going through the process, going through the motions, making sure we got the count right, or at least as right as is possibly going to be. I think the harm does come in, it it was not admittedly clear on election night, but it was pretty clear within a day or a day and a half, maybe, you know, Wednesday, Wednesday night, Thursday morning after election day that Joe Biden was going to win. The the votes in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, Georgia were all trending his way. He was going to win the election. And I think the problem comes from when the Trump administration does not yield to that and does not start the transition process right away. He he waited three or four weeks for the GSA to start the process. He just said on Wednesday or Thursday, four days ago, that if the electors vote for Joe Biden in December, he will honor those results and he will hand over power. But you've now had three or four weeks where an incoming presidential administration, how many hundreds of people who are going to be working in the White House running the country, do not have access to 
presidential daily briefings. You don't have access to classified intelligence reports. And I, there's a cost to that. I think that a month is fine for that. I mean, we've got middle of December through the end of January, you know, six weeks, five, six weeks. I think, I think that's fine. And, and I think it's more important to make sure that the votes are correct than it is to have a speedy transition when you already have five weeks. And so this is, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who immigrated from the, uh, Former, I forget which one, but one of the former Soviet republics. Oh, yeah. And voter fraud happens. Like, not so much here in the United States, like I said, because we have all of these checks and balances. But do y'all think Putin's election was, was yeah. straight up? Like, this isn't something that happened a hundred years ago. This is st- things that are happening today. And, you know, when you, a lot of these people who came from these former Soviet republics, or again, my wife is in family, yeah. her family are Romanian, you have, like, that you have this ruling class that just kind of does whatever they want. And, you know, you're going to have an election with air quotes and guess who wins the guy who was going to win all along. Yeah. They don't actually believe that they think it's rigged. It's it's yeah. And so that's why a lot of them are so disenfranchised with even voting because why bother voting if the, the ruling class is just going to put their guy in anyway. And so I think it's much more important to make sure that we go through the process and make sure that this thing is straightforward and go through the checks and balances than letting, I I don't think it's going to hurt the presidency. I don't think it's going to hurt the Biden administration to have to wait a couple weeks before they start taking over. Unless I'm wrong, Putin rigged the election so Putin would win, not the other guy would win. I think if there were as much rampant, you know, concern for that, Donald Trump would have rigged the election so he himself won. I don't think elections are local. Elections are state level. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got state legislation. And and I'm not, I'm not saying that there was election fraud. I don't believe that there was election fraud, but I also think it's much more important to go through the steps. just to make sure than it is to give the Biden administration an extra couple weeks and, of transition. And my point on this has always been, look, it was a unprecedented election, both from the rancor, the amount of money spent, but we are in the middle of a pandemic. And many, many of these states were prototyping new election processes mm-hmm. in the middle of this presidential election. Oregon wasn't. Yep. Right. We, yeah, we, we have, do it, we do it this way all the time. Dennis Richardson, um, audited the process. Yes, he found some fraud. It was small relative to the total number of votes cast. Um, didn't, and, and put some things in place to make it even better. And I think we can continue to improve. But in many states, they, like created new processes and it's like, yeah, we're just going to send ballots out or are you going to signature verify them? No, well, maybe we will, maybe we won't. And because of that, I wanted the process to methodically work through this to determine, yes, it was valid. No, it was not valid. This was legal. This wasn't legal. This was in our constitution. This wasn't so that when you get to the end, you can say the process was followed and this is the result. And, and I think that, I think that's a very good point. Uh, many, many states were whole cloth new ways of conducting an election. And they're, I mean, you could look to other states like Oregon that have done this before for some kind of information have. on how to do it. <laughs> but yeah, I, they, these guys were basically, they had four or five months to say, all right, we have to invent something completely new. And I very much agree I, with the both of you that you you want to get this right. You want to take the extra time to make sure everything is the way it is. At no point was there ever 
credible allegations of fraud or miscounting or undercounting or dead people voting or anything like that. Anything that would have merited a, a serious a set of lawsuits in different states, a serious delay in any of the, the necessary actions yeah, to hand over power to the There's no evidence until there is. There's no evidence until you look at it. I mean, I can tell you that we had an election and I won five to three, except there's only three of us here. And unless you looked and said, oh, there's only three of us here, like you wouldn't know that that was a fraudulent. You have to look at it. The thing, That's what counting the votes is. That the they thing, did that. The other thing yeah, was well, is that it's there's three states, Arizona, Georgia, and um, I think it was Wisconsin that are within about 10,000 votes, 10, 15,000 votes in those three states. And if you mm-hmm. flip those three states, it ends up a tie. Yeah. That's how, that's how close it was. So, and the media, you'd never know that it was that close. All you see in the media is Biden now has broken 80, 80 million votes nationally or whatever it is. It's the most number of votes ever attained, you know, and, and look, I understand that they want to make it a fait accompli and they want to just say, look, it was a landslide victory. If you take California out of the equation, it wasn't a landslide victory in the, in the, the uh, national popular vote. Can we just do that anyway? Yes, I'd like to. <laughs> um, but because it was so close and it was so close in such key states. Um, and the, the other interesting thing for me is there is a difference between what happened in the House and the Senate and what happened in the presidency the election for the president. There's a very stark difference. And I want to talk about that when we get back. We've got to take a break. We'll be back. This is Ali and Pacero with James and Nick. The Portland spirit is headed to the river. Hop on board today for great views of the Portland skyline and historic Milwaukee waterfront. See our local landmarks and bridges from a unique vantage point on the river. Grab a cocktail on our outer deck while enjoying some of our delicious local cuisine. Fun for the whole family with options including lunch, brunch, dinner, and the famous Heart of Portland cruise. Tickets can be purchased at portlandspirit.com. This is Ali and Pacero with James and Nick from the Rational Republican. We're talking about election 2020. And one of the points I was just about to make is uh, the national election for president was much closer than what all the polls said. Mm-hmm. Um then you look at the House and you look at the Senate, and most of these would have uh, likely Republican, lean Republican, toss-ups, lean Democrat, likely Democrat. The Republicans took all of the Republican seats, all of the likely Republican seats, all but one or two of the toss-ups in the, in the House and in the Senate. Mm-hmm. And even some of the lean Democrats went Republican, not many, but three or four of them went Republican. So there was this sort of, I'll call it a, a wave election of people voting for Republican legislators at, at the congressional level and the House level. And you guys might have some data on what happened in, in state House and state Senates. Uh, the Republicans didn't lose governorships. There weren't that many, but I think it was, I don't think the Republicans lost one. I think they might have flip-flopped one, mm-hmm. that the Democrats won one, Republicans won one. But 
but the bottom line, it was kind of, I mean, if taken as a midterm election, Republicans pick up eight or 10 seats in the House, you'd say it was kind of a Republican wave. How do you account for that, that apparent difference? So if it's me, I think polling is bad. I think (laughs) polling does not know how to poll Donald Trump. And I think the, the Republican party, and this is my, this is my hope for what the, the lasting legacy of the Trump administration will be is a pivot away from total free markets, total, uh, you know, we're the big business party. We're all, you know, the really intelligent guys. We all went to Harvard, Ivy League degrees, whatever, and a pivot towards a some degree of populism, a pivot towards uh, going back to being of the party of the blue collar worker, going back to having states like Georgia and Arizona be competitive, but states like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania yeah. being winnable for the GOP. And I think that the the pollsters, the powers that be, all had so many of these Senate seats, so many of these House races going to the Democrats by high single or even double digits, and they just don't know how to poll a populist GOP. I was listening to the 538 Politics podcast. Uh, I forget if it was on the way down here or yesterday, but one of their most recent episodes, they talk about polling error. And they said back in like the 70s, you could have a random sampling and probably one in five people would respond to your polls. Mm-hmm. And he said, now it's closer to about one in a hundred mm-hmm. who respond to the, to these polls. And so you have to call a lot more people and that one in a hundred. It is ends now up, no longer a random right, sample. Right. Well, it's, it's still random, but it's less representative. And so when you, when you're polling one in five people, you know, you can get a, a good understanding, like a, a broad, um, just idea of what the populace is thinking. But when only one in a hundred even responds, you're, uh, you, you just end up with really, really bad, data and i yeah and and so this is you guys i'll just flip this towards you this no is one the can house see this except for us i know so. <laughs> i'll flip it towards you we can flip it toward the camera they might be able to see it yeah. there's a lot of red and a I lot of blue squares there's a lot of red so of the in the toss-up category um 16 this is in the house 16 were rated toss-ups republicans have won 14 of them, uh, Democrats won one, and there's still two to call. And when the Republicans won them, it's like 54-46, 58-42, 56-43, 52 This wasn't that close. And, I just and, they, off- and they were rated toss-ups. And then in the column of 34 likely or leaning Democrat, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven Seven of those 34 flipped to Republican and the leaning Republicans, none of them, and none I, of them flipped. Just off the top of my head, I can tell you probably we, you could do the same math for the Senate, probably Colorado, Arizona, Iowa, um, Maine, North Carolina, North Carolina might have been a toss up, but all those would have been likely or well, at least lean Democrat. Republicans won all but two of them. And that's, uh, the Democrats were dancing around already. They thought for sure they were going to have 52, 53 seats in the Senate and they could deal with a Joe Manchin in West Virginia defecting or something like that. And now it looks like, barring two special elections in Georgia, it looks like the GOP is going to maintain control of the Senate because again, so many GOP senators won likely or at lean Democrat Senate races. So is the polling horrible or or did Republicans really outperform or what's the, I have no idea. 
I, right. I, I think we're too close to the election to, I, I, like I said, I think, I think 538 is probably going to dig way into this and we'll be able to hear about it yeah. in a couple of weeks. Well, I don't know. And, and it seems like in the age of technology today, we should have indirect methods of polling based on social media behaviors or something that would actually give you a better feeling for the outcome of an election than talking directly to people. Because if, if somebody asks me, who are you going to vote for? I don't know if I'm going to tell them. And I, I don't know if I'm going to answer because I, I'm sick of people tracking me and profiling me and, and this kind of stuff. Yet, and I used to say this when I was with the Republican Party, there's no reason to knock on a door and interview somebody. Just go to their Facebook page. Hmm. Look at their friends and their likes. And you don't even need some scraping algorithm to go in and scrape it. Just look at it, right? Yeah. And you can grade somebody on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being a true supporter and 1 being, heck no, I'm never supporting your candidate, and get a very accurate representation of people. I think that's going to be a legacy of the 2020 election. I think polling did not obviously get this right i think there were you know there was debate about are there silent trump voters and i think there were far fewer of those than the media and definitely than republicans would have liked but i think that there are a ton of folks who just don't want to talk to pollsters who aren't even going to engage in the question and then lie or not to fail to answer when they say are you going to vote for donald trump or not I think polling will have to get better. And I think the second part of that is we need to find ways of determining who people will vote for other than polling. And if that's looking at somebody's Facebook, if that's looking at their, you know, social cues, who their friend groups are, I think the data are out there. There are ways to investigate this, but you can't just rely on, you know, Ipsos says this and PPP said that. I, another interesting thing that I, I think is coming out of this is how much we've all retreated to our own echo chambers. And again, this is another, another 538 thing. They, this is before the election. They said something like 80% of Trump supporters were 100% convinced that Trump was going to win. And something like 80% of Biden supporters were 100% convinced that Biden was going to win. And their thought was, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of people who were completely convinced their candidate was going to win and it's going to, it's not going to work. Like they're, they're going to be wrong. And so you're going to have a lot of people who, who are, don't accept the election or who are, who are concerned about that. And I think that just is, is the, the nature of social media is that we only talk to people who we agree with and you get these little insular communities of everybody echoing off each other and talking about the same things and the same views. And, uh, I, I don't know. Well, I guess we'll see, but I don't know if you can take someone's Polit- I mean, to, a, to a, on an individual voter standpoint, you can say, okay, this, this is a person is going to vote this way. But if you take it on aggregate, you're going to get a handful of people who are very, very vocal, but they only get one vote. Right. So does that, does that one very excited person translate into a bunch of different votes or is it just one excited person? It depends upon who they are and what influence do they have. That's right. So we've got to take a break. We'll be right back. We're talking about election 2020. This is Ali and Pacero with James and Nick. Welcome back to Ali and Pacero with James and Nick from Rational Republican. We're talking about election 2020 and the difference between the House and the Senate and the presidency. And one of the things I wanted to look at is I just zoomed up on the Oregon map here. And from my time planning these statewide elections, to win statewide... <clears throat> 
a Republican needs about 33% in Multnomah County. And if you can get to 33%, you almost can't lose if you can break 33%. Um, and then Washington and Clackamas counties, you have to basically break even. You have to tie in Washington and Clackamas counties. And if I look back on my treasurer's race, um, I won Washington and Clackamas combined by 5,000 votes. And um, I almost got to 33% in Multnomah County. The interesting thing is Washington and Clackamas combined for 5,000 votes. I won Baker County by 5,000 votes. Hmm. So in a vote differential, Baker County is just as important as Washington and Clackamas combined because they cancel each other out, mm -hmm. right? And that was my message to rural Oregon is you are freaking important mm -hmm. because I could have picked up six or 7,000 votes in Baker County had it fallen right, overwhelming the combination of Washington and Clackamas. And the rural counties don't feel like they're that important, but they really, really are. I, so I did some analysis into the 2018 race, digging into the numbers, and turnout in some of those rural counties among Republicans is actually quite low yeah. compared to other places. So you're going to get low Republican turnout in Multnomah County. Like you, you just are because everybody's disenfranchised and they feel like they they have no say. But yeah, Lake County, Baker County, you have low turnout. Right. And, and they feel like they don't matter. Yep. Right. Yep. And that was my message when I was chairman of the party is to go to those counties mm -hmm. and talk to them about this. Now, remember I said 33% in Multnomah. Yep. Trump got 18. Sounds about right. Swing and a miss. Right. <laughs> and then Washington and Clackamas combined, you need to basically break even. And in Washington County, it was Biden 66, Trump 31. In Clackamas County, it was Biden 54, Trump 43. You're not going to get there from here. The, the Trump hatred in the metro area is, is pretty strong. Very strong. Well, and that's, that's apparently what was driving this. Marion County is one that a strong Republican can win. And that was Biden 49, Trump 48. So he underperformed Marion as well. Um, out on the coast, though, interestingly enough, the coast is turning red. Mm -hmm. So in Tillamook County, Trump wins 50-48. In uh, Columbia County, Betsy Johnson's county, uh, Trump 53-43. And so to, to your point earlier, I think there is a macro trend change for first generation working Americans that are small business people mm -hmm. that are turning away from the Democratic Party, traditionally Democrats turning away from the Democratic Party. I think increasingly labor, um, private sector labor, blue collar labor is turning away from the Democratic Party. Um, and the Democratic Party is picking up college-educated urban people in general. And mm -hmm. suburban. And suburban people yeah. in general. Um, but I, I think net-net, the, the Republicans, and, and people are going to tell me I've got aluminum foil wrapped around my head, the trend is a po very positive trend for the Republicans. When you're picking up people that traditionally are 80-20 Democrats, 
and and you go 20, 25, 30, you're doubling 50% increase in the number of voters that you're getting. And it's, I, I think it's a very fertile ground. I think the democratic message is, is completely being rejected. Do you think that this has to do with uh, what the, what the Democrats are planning to give away? I feel like they used to be about minimum wage and about, you know, unions and and propping up the little guy and giving stuff to the working class. And now they're talking about giving away college tuition. Right. And so do, right. you, th- do you think that that's kind of. Pushing yes. And I don't. Uh, so I'm a first generation American. I came here. I've got a, a lawn service business or I'm, I'm doing drywall or I'm, I mean, I'm in the trades. Right. I didn't go to college mm-hmm. and I'm I'm kind of making it work but i've got this new oregon saves thing that they implemented <laughs> that i don't know if you guys have been through but I, I i had to call them because they didn't have me sign yeah, up for right. it for my business and uh so i asked you know hey give me the thing i need like when's my deadline okay i gotta sign up by the middle of january blah blah, blah. and i was like so how do i how do i opt out and she kind of like the person on the phone was like huh i was like <laughs> yeah so they're like oh we'll we'll send you a thing in the mail if you want to opt out you can you can sign it i was like okay thanks yeah <laughs> she no. didn't she didn't get it and i'm not i'm not opposed to this is a program that we have here where basically you're required to put a 401k in place for your employees mm-hmm. or the government will do it right right so you're you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't if you've ever implemented a 401k in your company, you take on fiduciary, some fiduciary responsibility for your employees. And that's a, that's a fairly hairy burden. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm a little company. Maybe I don't want to do that. Okay. I'm going to turn it over to the government. Well, I have to give them all of my employees, their social security numbers, their payroll information, because they're going to audit um, the withdrawals, the withdrawals actually go to the government at that point. And now I have this weird kind of the government is in some ways partially responsible for my employees. And what happens when I lay somebody off or I have a reduction in force or something? Now I've got to notify the government and now the government's going to say, well, why are you? Geez, Alan, why are you doing that? And, and what was their status? You know, are they an underrepresented minority? And, you know, are we going to audit you for that? And so I'm a first generation American. I'm burdened by all this stuff. They talk about giving away free college tuition to people. I'm going to pay for it. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sit with me. Right. And here in the state of Oregon, this is what I've said before. Like I, you know, having just started a business a little over a year ago. You know, I gave up a six-figure job to try my hand at, at <laughs> yeah. entrepreneurship and, you know, took an enormous cut in pay with the expectation that this will work out and I'm going to get paid later, you know. But if I do happen to make it and my my company gets more than a million a year in revenue, bam, cat tax. Oh, right. and, and if I make it and I end up in that top tax bracket <laughs> making 250 k a year... I get hit with all the other taxes that they're that they're levying on on rich every people. Every two and it's, years, you get it's, more. Yeah, every two years, I get more. And it's not because I was born into wealth. It's not because I'm some executive at Intel. It's because I took a financial, a significant financial hit early to put for the potential payout later on. Yeah, and they don't they don't understand that. We're that segment seems short. Wasn't it? <laughs> no, I think was, we got on a roll. It was, was a good it right? one. That was right. That was right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> We're at the end of our segment. This is Allie and Pacera with James and Nick. We'll be right back.
Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503-558-6349 or proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Welcome back to Alley and Pacero. This is Alan Alley with James Ball and Nick Perlosky from the Rational Republican. Limousine liberals. Yeah. Yeah. Love abusive power. I do too. That's Lift a, liberals in one case. <laughs> was it? <laughs> I, Joanne Hardesty. That was the other one. Oh, yeah, that was the other one. But what was, set this one up for us. So, of course, with all of the COVID restrictions, one of the recommendations, although not a mandate, is to not travel or to limit travel or whatever. And so I forget which one, but one of the Multnomah County Commissioners. Sharon Mirren, I think is her name. Who is in Zion. a. Yeah, somebody I had never heard of. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, how many other county commissioners can you name? That's, None. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But she took a trip to Hawaii. So rather than obeying her own, you know, recommendations that are coming from. So, I mean, it's a nonpartisan position, but definitely a, all Democrats, a, a Democrat. Yeah. All Democrats. Oh, whoops. There we go. Go ahead. That is Myron. Um, I pronounced it right. Yeah, so she took a trip to Hawaii and was working from home, quote-unquote. She followed all the COVID projections. And so it's just a comment that all of these Democrats making all of these rules for all of us underlings uh, don't feel like they need to follow the same rules that that we are. I mean, this is back to Kate Brown taking a private jet to Sun River, you know, in the middle of talking about climate change. It's like, okay, one private jet is not going to make a huge difference, but... If this is your point, you need to be walking the walk and not just making the rest of us follow your rules. And or Joanne Hardesty, who is, you know, police reform, rah, rah, defund the police until she has a problem with her Lyft driver. And all of a sudden she dials 911. It's it's these rules are good enough for everybody else. But if you're a limousine liberal, you can just do whatever you want and expect no consequences. And I just to state the obvious Commissioner Mirren did not do anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with going on a vacation, especially if you're following the safety protocols. She said she wore a mask, said she had quarantined beforehand, all this, that and the other. But it's still wonderful. Recommended not to. Well, and that's the thing. That's the thing is if if you are from a position of power using that to say, all right, guys, we're all in this together. Nobody can travel. Nobody needs to do anything. I know, you know, stay home, save lives. You cannot flip around and then just say, well, I'm just going to work from Hawaii. And I, and she tried to defend it, tried to just say, well, we really needed a vacation. We really need a break. Yeah. We, <laughs> so the whole world everybody. needs a break. It's so the middle of a pandemic. Yep. We've been doing this for nine months now. You are not special. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I worked in the governor's office, we were incredibly sensitive to that. I had, um, I had season tickets to the Seahawks games when I worked in the governor's office. And these are expensive mm-hmm. tickets. Yeah. So if I gave them to somebody, it's it's a lot of money. You know, if I gave four tickets to somebody, mm-hmm. it was a sizable amount of money. And we researched it and it turned out I could give them to um, employees, but I couldn't give them to anybody outside. Mm-hmm. And I found it to be enormously annoying but we followed the rules because we knew that 
my position in the governor's office of who I was and the visibility I had, it was going to be important. And I didn't want to embarrass the governor. Mm -hmm. Right. So you follow, you follow the rules. Um, and it is a, a burden of responsibility that you accept. I think when you take that position that there are, there are things that, you know, in your private life, you could get away with and nobody would think twice traveling to Hawaii, right? Mm -hmm. She didn't do anything wrong. But when you're in one of those positions, I, I don't think you should, you need to artificially restrict what you do to set an example. Absolutely. I used to say in my companies that the CEO sets the watermark for behavior in the company. And if the CEO is running around and doing things and carousing around when they're not supposed to, mm -hmm. uh, displaying certain behaviors in the office, things like swearing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If the CEO swears in the office, everybody can swear, right? Yeah. If the CEO doesn't swear, people still will swear, but but you've set an environment. It's not what the culture is. Right. Yeah. Where it's it's just not an acceptable thing. And And as the CEO, as the leader... I think you have to be consciously aware of that. And mm -hmm. clearly, in some cases, Kate has not done that. And certainly... Uh, Commissioner Mira has not. Right. Joanne Hardesty has not. Yeah. Just, just, a, just from a standpoint of being tone deaf, of not understanding. I mean, that people are struggling in this state. People are struggling in this country. We talked about the, the courthouse people who were fined $90,000 because he didn't think he could survive a two-week shutdown. Right. I mean, people are on the edge and you've got your fancy, you know, six-figure job with the state or with the county, and you're going to go to Hawaii? Well, find $90,000, and there are protesters that are socially gathering that, right. aren't, that aren't being sanctioned. Yeah. And, and, and that's the hypocrisy of this. Here's, here's somebody that's trying to make a living. That's all they're really trying to do is make mm -hmm. a living. And they're trying to do it in a responsible way. And they have identified that there haven't been cases and there haven't been transmission. And they're trying to do all that right. And they get whacked with 90000 I heard a, a story of a, a car dealership early on where there was somebody in there trying to buy a car. And one of the, the state people to oversee this came in and saw that they were less than six feet away from the, mm. the person that they were uh, working with to do this transaction. They find them 500 bucks and they did it like three times. Mm. And it's like, Oh, come on. You know, I think it's because I, they you can. should say thank you for buying a car in this horrible Exa yeah, environment and the economy yeah. going. Let me tell you, there's there's kind of rules about how you do this. And it would be safer if you'd stay six feet away or if you'd put on a mask. That would be great. But I'm here from the state of Oregon. We're going to make a half a percent on your transaction because there's a sales yeah. tax on cars. Right. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Here's my card. Right? No. Yeah, this I think is it's, a, a it's gross abuse of power. And and I think it's, I mean, A, it's political because the Democratic Party is on the side of the rioters. And so they don't want to, you know, take off the, the extreme left. But the other thing is that they can. You know, it's very easy to govern people who follow the rules and harder to govern people that, that don't. And so if you wanted to go out and try to find people in the middle of the riots, 500 bucks, you're going to find a lot of people with no IDs. You're going to have to find a lot of people. I mean, in addition to them being pissed off, but you go to a business 
businesses can't move. They're already registered. Yeah. Every, they have all the information. It's very, and OSHA has so much power and they, they just, you, you can, you're able to, the people who follow the rules and do the right thing are very easy to control. And, and just to make a, a quick aside, data show that all these riots, all these protests for as problematic as they are, are not super spreader events. If you're outside and you're continuing to wear masks and I frankly applaud the county and the city for not throwing at least coronavirus like rules at the, at some of these folks for being outside and violating obviously coronavirus protocol because that's just common sense. These are not super spreader events. My concern, why cannot, why can't you apply that same logic to other things like gyms and outdoor dining? Why exactly. can't I go to the Timbers game? Exactly. Why can't you go to a Timbers game? Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Yep. Because it doesn't fit with the democratic <laughs> the narrative. Football game. Yeah. Because this is a democratic state and you need to fit with the narrative. Yeah. It would have been great to have fans at the Oregon State Oregon game. Oh, yeah. that would have been oh great. The, the game, fans the game guys, former, oh formerly known as the Civil War. Right. <laughs> it would have been great to have been in the stands for yes, that. Yes, it would have been great. My dad, uh, people ask me, why do you care? So when my dad went, to Oregon State for about a year and a half. And he graduated from Michigan, but attended Oregon State for a year and a half. So mm-hmm. I've been a beaver since a little little guy. Michigan had a rough day yesterday, but yeah, Oregon's oh premier and football Purdue team, had another beavers. rough day, too. It was brutal on the football front. But that's going to wrap it up for our podcast for this week. For Ali and Sarah, we'll have Jim back next week. But guys, thank you for filling in. It was always great to see you in the Rational Republican podcast. There's a new one. Is there a new one out now? Yeah. And, uh, there's always a new one out. And you go to SoundCloud or, or Apple? What's you the best J- way? You can go to jamesaball.com. Oh, there we go. Or any whatever app you use to download podcasts. Okay. We're everywhere. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. This has been Allie and Passero with your hosts, Alan Alley and Jim Passero. The podcast is produced by James Ball. Be sure to follow us on Facebook. And if you'd like to contact the show, you can send an email to alan at alanalley.com.